For me, fashion is a verb. So it's too fashion. You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis with Claire Press. Join me every week as we look at sustainability, ethics, and the business and madness of fashion. This week, we're having an important conversation with the extraordinary Tarana Burke, founder of the Me Too movement. We recorded in Australia late last year when Tarana came to town to accept the Sydney Peace Prize on behalf of Me Too. I do want to warn you that we discuss sexual violence not graphically, but in case this subject is triggering to you, I just wanted to let you know that. For more information, you can go to Tarana's website, which is me2mvmt.org. Now, in some ways, I think this episode is similar to one that I did with Lola Young. It was episode 53 about modern slavery, in that we're diving into a heavy topic. But actually, this conversation is full of energy. We do have a laugh. We talk about fashion as well as the deep stuff. Tarana is one of the most fascinating and inspiring women I've ever interviewed. And I feel really lucky to have spent some time with her. I'm not the only one who thinks so. Shortly after we did this, Rihanna tapped Tarana to be in her guest-edited January issue of ID magazine. After you've listened, do let me know what you think. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Mrs Press. And please do share this episode with anyone you think would benefit from it. If you want more on this, check out another previous episode. This one's number 42, and it's with Sarah Ziff from the Model Alliance, and it's all about Me Too in the fashion industry. Now, just a quick thank you to the Sydney Peace Foundation and the University of Sydney for all your help with this podcast. Now, let's get to the show. Tarana, thank you so much. <laughs> you've been through it today. A little bit, but we've been through it together. <laughs> but at least you've been to see the opera house and had a bit of a walk around because everyone's have. been demanding things of you on this trip. It's been a, it's been a pretty intense schedule. Um, I'm sad that I didn't get to see more of Sydney, but I plan on doing that for the but next congratulations day. Congratulations so. on you. being recognised for the Sydney Peace Prize. Thank you. Thank you. It was pretty amazing. What does it mean to you? I loved hearing you talk about the importance of recognising the work that you do his peace work last night? Yeah, I think that, that that is something that we haven't seen around. I mean, you know, last year the Nobel Prize went to two people who had dedicated their lives to sexual violence or anti-sexual violence work. So that was amazing. And every, you know, I kept getting a phone calls saying, oh, you're going to get the Nobel Prize. And I was like, I don't think so. So it lets me know, though, that this is an issue that people are recognizing as something that is really a human rights issue, that we should be talking about it the same way we talk about other human rights issues. So it, it feels good to have that recognized as that in that category. Last night at the ceremony for the award, yeah. you also talked about this idea of this whole issue being viewed as a global health epidemic, mm -hmm. it really struck me. Yes. Do you want to just explain what you meant by that? I think that we have to acknowledge that the prevalence of sexual violence definitely is on par with global health issues. It's a public health crisis. When you have millions and millions of people whose lives are affected by the same thing, and then their material lives are then in many ways deteriorated once they are affected by this thing, you have to look at it as a crisis. And it's a health crisis because we're talking about people's bodies that are being violated, right? We're talking about violence. Gun violence can be seen in a similar kind of way. So sexual violence absolutely should be categorized as a public health crisis. You actually said if it were a rash or something you could oh, yeah. visibly see, imagine, imagine how people would react and how governments and how... The world would stop 
if we woke up tomorrow with the number of people who've experienced sexual violence having where you could visibly see it, it could wear it on their skin, they had a, a mark on their body or something like that, people would be appalled at just how many people were affected by it. Mm. And the world would actually mm. come to a halt while we while we started asking real serious questions. And yet because I call us the walking wounded, those of us who have experienced sexual violence carry those wounds on the inside. Most people can't see the, you know, there are some people who actually do have visible wounds from their, from the trauma they experience, but most of us don't. Mm. And we have to go about living our lives. And so because you see me work and play and sing and eat and dance and have relationships, the assumption is you're fine, mm. but a lot of us are not fine. And so I categorize it that way so that we, to kind of drive home the importance and really maybe add a bit of drama so people can yeah. understand just how serious it is. Oh, just quickly as well, you started the week going to Cabramatta High School. How was that? Oh, my God. Listen, the high school has been one of the highlights of this week. I mean, I really do. My, my life's work has been um, dedicated to young people in many, many ways. I love working with young people. And those kids were, first of all, they were on fire. And I think a lot of times people think that children, literally children, are removed from this. And and in some ways, because we don't talk to them about it, they think it's in Hollywood or somewhere else. They asked such great questions. They had an opportunity to come up and ask us questions. But just the display that they put on and this this thing that they celebrate peace every year, it was it was so good. I That's sat, good. I drummed with them, I chanted with them, I ran around like a kid. I mean, it was great. Yeah, it was great. You started out working with young people in Alabama, and we are going to come back to that later, but just wanted to ask you how and why does the young generation give you hope? This generation in particular, and I know people, you know, it's kind of cliche to say, oh, the the children are the future, and they give us hope. But honestly, this generation in particular, I feel has such an expanded analysis beyond what we had and beyond with. So I've been working with young people since I was pretty much a young person myself, right, 20-something years old. So I've seen a couple of, maybe not generations, but just sort of groups (laughs) that have passed that are now adults. So young people I worked with very early on are now in their 30s. And then there's a group that are in their 20s. But this really young generation, they get issues about human rights. They get issues. They think intersectionally. You don't have to talk to them about identity. You know, they get gender identity. They just they just get it in a very different way and it's so easy I mean I come into a room with young people and we get to have really good Mm -hmm. conversations I don't have to patronize them I don't have to talk down to them so they give me hope in that way I think you know when I was a kid I was fired up and I was doing this work but I had a very small analysis everything for me operated through a lens of racial injustice and economic injustice and it was really it was small you know I know that now it's expanded over time I didn't think about gender issues, even though I, I was as a woman. I didn't think about LGBTQ issues. I didn't think about disability. I didn't think about these things. So these kids, they fire me up all the time. Also, I think <laughs> that we always want to protect kids and we think they can't exactly. deal with it. I do a lot of work in climate and you think you don't want to break their little hearts with the grim realities of the world. But actually, they already know. My God, look at Greta. Yeah. Look at the Parkland students. These look are, at the Parkland students. Oh, my gosh. I mean, I mean. You know, my daughter was out in the street. I mean, I was out in the street at 14 years old, leading protests, marching, rallying, organizing students. So it's in my blood. Mm-hmm. And so I've never, ever looked at young people as other or as incapable of doing things. Yeah. And honestly, the reason why I am who I am now, just personality-wise, is because 
adults told me when I was 13 and 14 years old that I had power. Do you know what I mean? They didn't try to reduce my power. They said, you have a lot to learn, but you still have power now. It really makes a difference what it you're told makes a you're difference. a kid, doesn't Absolutely. It? Good to remember that. Mm-hmm. We've got to get fashion out of the way, Tarana. I was like, how ah! on earth? How can I? <laughs> Tarana Burke's like this incredible woman who's leading, <laughs> leading a movement and building this world. And I'm going to say to her, I really love the frock you wore for your TED talk, but well, I have to. <laughs> can I just say, fashion is a big part of my life. You know what? I say mm-hmm. I was nervous, but mm-hmm. I wasn't then because last night you looked so great on stage. I was oh, like, thank I can you. talk about clothes with Oh, this absolutely. No, uh, so here's a secret about me. It's not a secret, but a little known fact. I had a fashion blog. It's called Yes, She Slays. I still have an Instagram page. I did not know this. I did. I have, Fashion is a very big part of my life. And in fact, I talk about it in relation to my work because as a survivor, it's really important for me to present in the world in ways that make me feel good and make me feel seen and make me feel, you know, bring me some joy. So I don't think it's frivolous at all. What were you wearing last night? Because it was extra good. So the same person who designed my TED Talk dress designed my dress last night. It's a woman. She's one of my best friends. Her name is Whitney Moreau. And her clothing line is called Onion by Whitney Moreau. Fantastic. This is hers too. This is old. but Beautiful. But that dress, the TED Talk dress, I wanted to ask you, because it is a serious thing. When you know that all eyes are on you and you begin, we'll share a link for everyone who hasn't seen it yet, Mm -hmm. which is no one because it's been watched by millions of people. (laughs) But when you know that all eyes are on you, there is that comes with obviously great responsibility in terms of what you say verbally, yeah. but also how you present. And I, I really thought about that. I thought about the color. You know, I wanted something that felt peaceful, that felt calm, and it made me feel calm, and it was comfortable for me to be in. So I, I gave a lot of thought to what I what I put on and what I wore. She made the dress for me. I picked the color, and then she... she so it's this dress. It's actually the same style. Oh, the same shape, yeah. Right, it's a wrap dress. It's one of her signature styles, but she made it in that color and just a really soft fabric. I do not, don't, I do not. It's in fact, when I first was sort of discovered in the world, people didn't know who I was, so they were doing these searches online. So there's some magazines were using my blog pictures because <laughs> there were not a lot of pictures of me online. So there are all these like pictures of me in thigh high boots and leather jackets and things. I'm going to dig for some of those pictures. Oh, you that have to. It's all, it's my, my Instagram is called Yes, She Slays. But actually, <laughs> these things are also really good ways of connecting. They're good ways yeah. of breaking down barriers. Yeah. You know, yeah. clothes can be a communicator in their own way. It really is. I didn't grow up with a lot of money. I have loved fashion since I was a little girl. And, you know, Vogue was like $4 or something like that. September, you know, it's a big, thick yep. book. My birthday is in September. And so every year, when I turned 14, my, my mom was asking me, you know, what do you want for your birthday? We were in a supermarket. She would never buy me a Vogue because she was like, I'm not wasting money on that. I had to buy it myself. So I said, can you buy me the Vogue magazine? Oh. And she did. She and did. so yes. every year in September, it's just a deal. My mother gets me a Vogue magazine because it's just our thing. But I read it. I read it religiously every September. I knew all the designers when I was young. Like I was obsessed with Vogue, and it had really good articles, and I could talk about things that made me sound fancy. (laughs) Just this is such a good news story for me. (laughs) One more quick fashion thing, and then we're going to move on to um, another area. But Mm -hmm. I do just want to ask about the power of clothes at the Globes because we're recording this uh, sort of in the run up to the two year anniversary Mm -hmm. of that moment, which was such a. I mean, everyone. I just think anyone who thinks about clothes at all it's stuck in everyone's mind the visual image of everyone dressed in black mm-hmm. and of course there was some controversy around it well that doesn't mean anything it meant something to me I was interested to know yeah. if you think it was 
what you think about it. Do you think it was effective? I think it was effective. So here's so the origin of that is really interesting. I was just telling it recently. Michelle Williams invited me to come. We had a conversation on the phone the day she invited me, and she said they were already intending to wear black. That was something that the uh, the actresses had already come up with. And when I asked her about the idea of not just bringing me, but bringing more activists and pairing them with other actresses, you know, she absolutely loved it. But my original idea was to have the actresses wear black and us to wear colors. Oh. Because I thought this is a way of visual amplification, right? The people who get the most attention all the time to wear black and play it down, and those of us who are being amplified, our voices being amplified. A genius idea. That there would be a visual amplification of us wearing color, but it, it just it didn't, you know. They wanted to be uniform. But after it happened, I thought, this is fine. It was a show of solidarity, you know, and it was a show of solidarity between these two worlds that never really get to collide. Um, and let's just mention for listeners who need to be reminded of some of the other activists who came along. So there was Mariah Larassi who came with Emma Watson. Yes. There was... There was... Um, Rosa Clemente uh, who came Rosa with... Rosa Clemente came with Susan Sarandon. There was Saru Jayaraman who came with... Amy Poehler. Um, Ai-Jen Poo who came with Meryl Streep. Laura Dern came with Monica Ramirez. And Monica Ramirez really is important because she's the one who wrote the letter that prompted Time's Up to form. Right. So, yeah, she's from the farm worker women's um, group. So let's just dial back to that moment. And I do want to get back into the viral Me Too moment. Mm-hmm. But just as we're on this subject, so this letter was published in Time magazine and it was from the Alliance of Farm Worker Women. Yeah. And it was so powerful because it was saying, OK, we work in a very different world outside of the bright lights off the stage That's and screen. Right. We're in the shadows, we're hidden. And yet we are share this monstrous thing of being... Mm-hmm. I want to say, of, of, of dealing with harassment and and abuse and exploitation and the same things that these. But women, from men in power, I mean. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Same and it story, was, different occupation. Basically, the idea was we're all workers who are dealing with this thing. And uh, Monica Ramirez is, I don't even know how to describe her. She is such a force, but she's gentle and compassionate in ways that you don't often see in people. She's deeply compassionate and deeply thoughtful, and she wrote that letter. And because who would think to do that, right? She wrote that letter and got it to the women in Hollywood, and their response to it really sparked this whole thing. So Monica was there with Laura Dern. And that that experience, one, with that experience, and I think the most important thing for me is it gave me a new level of solidarity with a group of women who I had not previously worked side by side with, you know. And that's and we still work side by side. We speak regularly. We text on the phone. We we are co-conspirators in a lot of work <laughs> together. So it's such a great night. It was such a great night. And I think it's um, it's easy to be reductive in the headline making on these kinds of things and say Hollywood or dresses or mm-hmm. and we'll get into this focusing on the monsters behind mm-hmm. the perpetrators. Right. But actually, if you look back at that moment, it was an extraordinary thing, a coming together of people from all different walks of life. So you've right. got, you know, domestic workers, farm mm-hmm. workers, you name it, yeah. any worker. You had workers but you, and you had survivors. You had people who had experienced all forms of sexual violence. You had people who, you know, some of the, the stories, and I don't mean their personal stories, but some of the conversations we had with the actresses about the ways in which they're limited um, and they have to show up in a very finite way in order to be successful in Hollywood. Oh, well, we're back on clothes because there's also this ridiculous pressure and tyranny of a certain kind of image. Yes, and, and you know, they have to wear certain clothes. So even in wearing black, you know, they were 
in designer clothes and some of them had obligations to fill. You know, it's just like their lives are... I know people are like, oh, poor you. You're forced to wear Louis Vuitton. But it's not just that. It's just so much control that is exercised upon them. And, and, you know, they were in some ways looking at us like, you all are so free. You get to say what you want, do what you want, move how you want, and still be successful in your field. And they can't do the same thing. So it was interesting. The things that you thought you knew... You know, we always think we know somebody else's life and they don't have bad lives, but definitely they're human beings, you know, and we we tend to put them on pedestals and, and put them in a box and then want them to be perfect. And when they aren't, we just throw them away like broken toys. And it's so sad. They're really they're really good people. Before we get off the kind of bright lights and mm-hmm. fancy celebrity part of this, me too. The hashtag went viral uh, in November when mm-hmm. Elizabeth October. In October. October 2017. When Alyssa Milano tweeted it. And then could you tell us the story of what happened? Because let's just say you're not on Twitter or you weren't then. Or you weren't <laughs> well, obsessively I was on Twitter. On yeah, I was, I had like 500 something followers. <laughs> yeah, and that's the thing. I, I was a fashion blogger and freelance journalist. So I would go on Twitter to post, you know, articles and to kind of chit chat with friends and things like that. But I definitely was not a prolific Twitter user. Alyssa Milano has over a million followers, you know, and of course she has the fan base and what have you. And that Sunday she put out this tweet and it was in response to trying to drum up support for Rose McGowan, Mm -hmm. who had been pushed off of Twitter, banned or something like that. And somebody suggested this to her. She tweets it out and then gets this massive response. But embedded in that response were people saying, this already exists. There's a woman who started this work very specifically around sexual violence, using Me Too. And then that, that drum beat kind of got bigger and bigger until she acknowledged it. That was what happened on her end. On my end, I was having a minor meltdown <laughs> about um, several things, about not being able to control the narrative and, and having what I thought was going to happen was that people, well, it has happened to some degree, People would take and run with it and not connect it to the the original work. And I thought there are survivors of sexual violence who are bleeding all over the internet and there's no container to process. There are people who feel compelled to say me too and use the hashtag but don't know why. And there's no, there aren't resources set up to support them after because I know what disclosure does to people. So I just had, I was just like wrecked with (laughs) worry and fear And I had a girlfriend who kind of said to me, well, one, you've been doing this too long for somebody to say that you haven't. You have tons of receipts. Just put them out. That's how the world works now. You know, you put out your receipts. And so I posted a video that late that night or early the next morning saying um, of myself giving a speech, wearing my Me Too shirt, which I used to, I always wear. I don't actually don't wear it as much now, but I used to wear this. It's our original T-shirt. It's black and pink. I've seen it. Yeah, and so I had a, I have on my Me Too t-shirt, and I'm giving a speech, and I said, you know, it's been wonderful watching people use this, and let me explain to you why we say it and where it comes from. And I really think it was just sort of a perfect storm. I think people themselves were curious as to why it was a phenomenon, and they wanted somebody to give context. I also think that the general public, it was a moment where it really could have been all about Hollywood and but there were too many everyday people using this hashtag. 12 million people in how short a time? 24 hours. Do you know what I mean? That's just as well beyond anything Hollywood could even sustain. This was, it had moved into the mainstream and, the, and out of this sort of 
it was became this pop culture moment, but it moved into the mainstream. And it was, I think, the fact that we don't acknowledge that the movement was not built on the backs of Hollywood. Those women came forward and they were survivors and they should have and we should acknowledge them and we wouldn't be here without them coming forward. But the Me Too movement, the hashtag went viral because of the labor of everyday survivors and because of people who had an experience with sexual violence across the full spectrum, not just being harassed at work. You You talk about the spectrum being very, very broad. Mm-hmm. Just just explain that for listeners who might not know what you mean. Yeah, I try to use this terminology around the spectrum of sexual violence so that people understand. Because I get asked the question a lot about, well, if somebody just says dirty jokes or is just, you know, kind of a, an asshole, at, excuse me, I'm not going you know, like a... We're in Australia. Oh. I <laughs> <laughs> you good? You know, like the guy who was just creepy at work or something like that is not the same as like a Harvey Weinstein. And so we've created these boogeymen that become the standard as if they're an anomaly and there's not like hundreds of them out there and thousands of them out there. So what this, when I say the spectrum, I mean on the one end of the spectrum is harassment, it's harassing language, it's things that we call rape culture, they uphold rape culture. It's behavior, it's language, it's what some people might call benign harassment, but that's important. It's very important. I was going to say, but not so benign, but let's come on to that. But then on the other end. But on the other end, and as we move up from there, there is actual harassment, right? There's stalking. There's all of these things that are all under the same umbrella. And then there's sexual assault. And there's, and and mind you, in that we have child sexual abuse. We have intimate partner violence. Like there's so many different iterations of sexual violence and how it can be manifested in the real world. And so most people go... Sexual harassment, and even when they say sexual harassment, they mean at work. We're not talking about street harassment. I thought that yesterday, that there was a lot of focus at the Peace Prize, um, everyone who spoke apart from you talking Mm -hmm. about work, and I was like, that's one aspect. It's just one aspect, and it's actually a difficult, it's a challenge for us, because even the, if you think about this, the Harvey Weinstein case, which so many people reference, is categorized as a case that upended this um, sexual harassment at work as an issue. But the truth of the matter is, yes, it's work-related because it's an industry, but he's a rapist. If you look at the cases that were levied against him, this is a man who physically assaulted women, who harassed them. Yes, there was a lot of sexual harassment, but we're talking about in hotel rooms. Mm -hmm. The story of Annabella Sciorra, the actress, where he kicks in her door and comes and sexually assaults her in her home. Mm -hmm. If you couch him under sexual harassment at work, it does not encapsulate all of this other behavior that we can't just put in one category. You mentioned before that often the kind of less extreme sexual harassment using language that is offensive mm-hmm. or upsets people right. could be characterized as benign. You know, oh, well, he was just joking or he didn't right. mean it. But let's talk about how that adds up to a system of violence. Those are the things that create the environment for violence to happen. If you talk in a very real way, if you are in a workplace, a school, an institution, any place where people are gathered, where it is allowed, where you are allowed to use that kind of language to talk to women in any kind of way, to touch them when, when you want to, this is not to say that all men behave this way. But if you line up 10 of them and nine of them, or if, let's just say seven of them behave that way, there's going to be one in that group that's going to go too far. It's a culture. You're creating it's a, culture a culture of enabling. Created, exactly. And then and you enable and you, you give permission. It, be, it creates a permissive culture that will inevitably lead to violence. This was the moment 
but we talked about the origins of the movement mm-hmm. and you said when you woke up to find that Twitter storm, yes. then your friends were saying to you, come on, what about what you've been doing? Right. Can you tell us that story? So what about that moment when you sat down in, at home and you had that piece of paper and you wrote down Me Too and started to oh, map out, yeah, and start to map oh, out yeah, yeah. a plan for that? Tell us where you were, what you were doing and what that, that was, meant. Well, see, that's in my book. I have to hold back a little bit. <laughs> I'm writing my book now. But I'm I actually so just excited finished. that you're I, writing a book. Well, I am too, if I can get these like words out of my body. Yeah. But I can say this. What was happening in Alabama where I was living was there, there was just... I try to be careful when I talk about this because I don't want to characterize it as this like horrible place, but there really was rampant sexual abuse and sexual violence happening. And I don't think it's different from other communities. I just think people don't articulate it. They're just not acknowledging what's happening, right? There were children, girls in my program who had were, you know, seventh grade girls who had like 21-year-old quote-unquote boyfriends. And there was... Um, a child molester in our community who was allowed to kind of just exist because he was a celebrated figure in the community. So so we were dealing with all of this. And where what was your organization? Oh, what were you doing at that time? I was living in Selma, Alabama. I had co-founded an organization called Just Be Inc. And Just Be was not about sexual violence. It was about girls who we were helping them develop a sense of self-worth really about grounding them, using leadership development to ground them in a sense of self-worth. These are black girls who the world told were you know, less than and not worthy. And so we wanted to ground them in a foundation that gave them the tools to say that's a lie. And that was, it was very effective. The, the program worked well, but the program created an additional space that for them they said, well, I want to unload this other thing. And so we kept getting disclosures. And the, you know, who did I hear say this recently? I was at a round table earlier today and this woman, this Aboriginal woman was talking about the Aboriginal young people who didn't have language, they didn't understand stuff about sexual violence and it was a place they had to start. It's exactly what we had to do. When I have a seventh grade student who gets mad at me because I chase away her, again, 21-year-old quote-unquote boyfriend, I realize that I have to figure out how to talk to this child and let her know that this is not a relationship, this is a crime. Nobody's ever said that. And so while this is happening, I, as a, as a, you know, what was I, 29 or 30 or something like that, I was still very much grappling with my own trauma and trying to figure out how to feel different, <laughs> how to feel better. And, because and feel, you're also a survivor. I'm also a survivor of both child sexual abuse and, and sexual assault as an adult. And I had compartmentalized those things, right? And so... I had kind of come to terms with the child sexual abuse to to some degree, to parts of it. And, you know, I'm sort of navigating this landmine in my brain, and I don't want to. This is what I was talking about last night. I did not want to do this work. I really did not want to do this work. You hear the call, but you're like, actually, I don't know if I can take this on. Yeah, I just felt like I know my lane. I can help these young people. And what I'll do is go out and find resources for them. But what happened is, and you might have heard this story, I'm in Alabama. There are very little resources to start with. And the resources that exist are not culturally competent at all. So I'm dealing with little black and brown girls in my program in a junior high school. I got some white woman coming along saying, well, and not even, fill out you know, this form. Yeah, yeah. Essentially, I went to the local rape crisis center thinking, well, let me get some information. Let me find out if we can collaborate. And I, I knocked, first of all, the Rape Crisis Center was situated next door to the halfway house. 
So the halfway house, I don't know if you have those here, right? Yep. Where people come out of prison and they stay yep. in these homes. Well, there's a, half, a men's halfway house. Next, really, the most illogical thing you can think of. Next door to the rape crisis center. So when you pull your well, car... Just someone the, thought chuckle the services on that I street. Just, just, I mean, yes, what, I think it was like a social service sidewalk or something, right? So when you get out your car, the back of the crisis center where you park, when you get out your car, there's a gauntlet of men just sitting out on these rocking yeah. chairs and chairs catcalling and whistling and calling out to, to in front of the rape crisis center. You know, it's actually it's heartbreaking, but it's also almost it's unfathomable. You can't you just think Twilight Zone, don't you? But this is bureaucracy. It's just it was crazy, and that's not you know that's not an indictment against yeah, the yeah. men or the halfway house or right. anything. But they were doing that. You so know? you're saying I would like to be able to refer people to these resources, but the resources aren't there. No, I in, in this particular day, so I come out. I'm. You know, I pass this gauntlet of men. I knock on the door. The woman comes to the door. She cracks it open. Doesn't even open it all the way. She cracks it open and she says, and she's on the phone and she says, "How can I help you?" From the door of a rape crisis center. Like inherently, if I'm here, I need something, right? So I was very polite and I said, "You know, I work at the local junior high school. I'm trying to find some services for my young people." And she cut me off and said, "We don't take walk-ins." Rape Crisis Center. What'd you take? She said, if you have a situation, you need to go down to the police department, fill out a police report, and they'll refer you over here, and somebody will come and meet you. You know, I was taking the piss when I said a white woman says fill out of a form. <laughs> that is actually what happened. That's actually what happened. I thought you just heard the story before. No, that's actually what happened. And so in my mind, and this was the day when I had the conversation with God that said, I don't want to do this <laughs> because I left there. I got back in my car. I sat in my car and I burst into tears. I know this is a super dramatic story, but this is the way I am in the world. <laughs> I like burst into tears. and I was like, God, no, I do not want to do this. I just I can't. And it just felt like I was having a conversation with myself because, you know, God was like, well, OK, then don't don't do it. You know, and I was back and forth and back and forth and back and forth, and I was just crying, and I went home, and I had this whole super emotional night, and that's the day that I woke up after that. Wow. And I wrote down, oh, I feel emotional even thinking about it. I wrote it in a notebook, and then I just filled this legal pad, this uh, steno pad with just notes. It just, it just came, like, how I wanted to set it up and what it would be about, and this idea of empowerment through empathy that I had been playing with in my mind over and over again. And so it just, yeah. Water. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Last night at the Sydney Peace Prize, we heard from an amazing Australian woman called Antoinette Braybrook. Mm -hmm. She runs a service for Indigenous women about surviving family violence, supporting women who've been through this mm -hmm. ringer. And the stats that she shared were just... I cried listening to her say those stats. We've heard some of them, but some of them were new to me. I think that every single Australian needs to read the press release that they put out this morning from her organisation, JIRA. I will share a link to it. But just to put it in perspective, Indigenous Australian women are 34 times more likely to be hospitalised by family violence than mm. non-Indigenous women. 34 times. And she talked about, in Australia, 60 to 90% of Indigenous women have been subject to family violence. Mm -hmm. And then there is a report from 2018 that stated that Indigenous Australians are 3.4 times more likely to be sexually assaulted mm -hmm. than non-Indigenous Australians. This kind of stacking up of multiple injustices 
is something that I think perhaps we don't unpack or understand enough as a no. society. No, those numbers are astonishingly close to the numbers that in the United States for black women and for indigenous women. I met with a group today and I, we were having this conversation because the unique thing about the Aboriginal community here, for me as an American, is that it is a combination of two communities, two oppressed communities in America, which is the you know African Americans and Native Americans. So the indigenous folks in the United States have the highest rate of sexual violence of right. any person, any group of people Same. of color. The you know absolute highest rate. Black women have the second highest rate. So it is you know it's just very very similar at these and and. I'm not sure if this is the case in the Aboriginal community. To some degree, they said it is. But in the United States, our indigenous folks have the highest rate of people from outside of their community coming into the community to commit these crimes. And it's been very difficult to have conversations about what sexual violence does in communities of color. There's also a culture of silence that is choking the life out of us. And the culture of silence is very interesting. I've spoken to people in a Latinx community, in Asian communities, in black communities, and all from different ethnic groups. We all have a culture of silence and all for different reasons, you know, and the different cultural reasons, but it doesn't matter because that silence, that shame that says, if you talk about this thing, you'll bring shame on your family. If you talk about this thing, our family will fall apart, right? People who are undocumented or come from Immigrant communities don't talk about the sexual violence or intimate partner violence because they're afraid of deportation and bringing law enforcement into your life in any way could lead to deportation, right? Mm -hmm. People in Asian communities talk about the deep, deep shame that it brings upon your family if you talk about and and the woman being, you know, um, having engage in any kind of sexual activity, right? It's just there are different reasons that come to the same conclusion that... There is, I, t- I say this all the time, sexual violence does not discriminate. There's no group of people, no demographic that it doesn't touch. But the response to it does. And we really have to dig into and unpack the response to sexual violence in these various communities. That's where we find discrimination. That's where we find bias. Because if you look at Me Too and how it went viral, right, and you have... The other thing that I think people are uncomfortable with when I say this, and I don't say it to detract from or even to disparage white women in any way, but we are socialized as a world, as a society, to respond to the vulnerability of white women. And so if a white men, they feel like their job is to protect and put on a pedestal their women. We are taught that if a white woman is in trouble, we have to protect her. If you're a white man, if you're a black man, if you're a black woman, you know, this is, and then some of this is American colonization and slave, you know, post-slavery kind of um, socialization. How that plays out is you can look at two different cases. There's Harvey Weinstein's case. There's R. Kelly's case, right? In the case of R. Kelly, who was the black R&B singer, I think most people know about that case now. Yeah, okay. But has the thing. Everyone knows about it now. We have been talking about R. Kelly in our community for 20 years. Oh, so it's the thing of don't bring down the black man. There's the thing of don't bring down the black man. There's so don't the bring thing down of this guy who we look up to. The underlying thing behind the don't bring down the black man is you don't bring down the black man for these black girls. Oh. If R. Kelly had been molesting little boys, he'd have been outed years ago. I guarantee you years ago. But because his victims were black 
girls. There is a um, a reporter named Jim D. Regattis. He is R. Kelly was his white whale. He was the, he was a, a music critic in Chicago. Jim D. Regattis took on that story and has been going after and writing stories about R. Kelly for like eighteen years now. Right? Seriously, it's incredible. Wow. One of his famous quotes in an expose that was came out in like twenty thirteen is he said, I've been doing this work for such and such amount of years, and the, the, the biggest thing that I've learned is that in America, no one matters less than black girls. Oh, God. When we listen to these stories, we feel... I'm sure listeners are feeling distressed, and the first thing you think is, how can we fix it? Mm-hmm. And obviously we can't fix right. culture overnight, but how can we be good allies? What can we do in our own lives, wherever we may be. Oh, there's so much. I, you know, the way I look at it, and I'll use this analogy that I use often about cigarettes. <laughs> Just follow me for a minute. I know it feels... But we are not too far removed from a time in our society where we smoked publicly. Oh, we smoked in the office. When we I first started in working office. in magazines, I smoked in the office. Oh, yeah. Smoked, in, smoked on planes. Not Vogue, I don't think. Independent, <laughs> independent magazines, everyone having a fag at work. Oh, no, we smoked on airplanes. We smoked in airports. We smoked in cars, right? We can change culture. Not for, and what happened, though, if you think about what had to happen for us to shift the culture around, my daughter, who's 21 now, thinks it's absolutely insane. The idea of it makes her, she thinks cigarettes are filthy and disgusting and can't imagine that we smoked on airplanes at any time in our lives. The thing is, if you look at the kinds of interventions that were necessary to get us here, it's a similar thing that we can do as an example of how we can shift culture. You had legislative interventions, right? There were laws passed saying you can't smoke in certain places. You had judicial interventions because people, there were huge lawsuits against the tobacco companies, right? So then you had cultural interventions. People stopped showing people smoking on television and in movies, the Marble Man went away, Virginia Slim's lady went away, right? You had research and medical interventions. Research came out that said secondhand smoke will kill you. We have to stop smoking in cars with our children. You had community interventions. People said we have to tell the truth about tobacco. So all of these things converged at the same time over time So we got to the point where you can smoke if you want to. It's a personal choice. It's super taxed at this point. It's looked at as gross. People understand the the damage it'll do to you. And the children who are coming up in this generation, it's second nature. They're like, oh, you'll die. (laughs) Yeah, that's dumb. I'm going to pay for that. I'm not going to do that, you know. And so I know that if we had multiple interventions, and that's why people need to understand that Me Too is a singular intervention. It's not the whole movement. It's not the answer that's going to, to that's going to change the face of sexual violence. We're going to move the needle without question. But I am a single person with a single vision that I'm clear about, and I think the vision is good, and I think it's broad, and I think it's a, it can be effective. But th- that vision has to be married to other visions. And we're in a moment now where, I mean, we've never had a sustained international dialogue about sexual violence to this degree. Mm. So now is the time yeah. for people to come forward with those visions and say, I'm going to take this angle and I'm going to take that angle and I'm going to take this angle. There have to be multiple interventions in order for us to to really have a chance at, at looking at an end. And by end, obviously, we mean, you know, people still smoke today. But we can, I do believe, and I believe it wholeheartedly, that we can get to a time in our lives where sexual violence is so dis, looked at with such disdain and people are socialized to, to respect other folks' humanity, you know, to the degree where you're like, who does that? Mm-hmm. Who talks like that? Mm-hmm. Who acts like that? Who behaves that way? We don't, we don't behave that way. 
You've said we're in a movement, not a moment. Obviously, yes. the hashtag was a moment. Yes. The Golden Globes was a moment. Just unpack that really briefly for us. Well, those moments. So first of all, Me Too is a movement. Even my work sits in the middle of an ongoing decades-long movement, right? There's the movement to end sexual violence did not start with me or Me Too. So if you keep that in mind, the, we've had big moments over time. The hashtag is probably the biggest moment in the movement to end sexual violence. And it's a moment that helped galvanize people. It helped... It was a shot in the arm to the movement that we are now riding on. Mm -hmm. We're riding on that wave, and we're expanding the movement because of the moment. And every time you have a moment, it is just about expanding the work. But it's not, you know, the Golden Globes was a stunt, and the hashtag was a fluke, <laughs> to be quite <laughs> honest. Who knew, right? It could, have, it could have come out and then disappeared a day later. But because it didn't, we are able to now build upon those moments to expand the movement. But people can't make a mistake and, and think that's what it is because neither of those things are sustainable. I started off asking you about fashion because I love fashion and yes. you do too, so it's all right. I want to <laughs> end with a slightly fashion question Okay. with a deeper meaning, which is I watched a video of you speaking recently at a Time event. Okay. You're wearing a red suit. Yes. It's fabulous. But you had a nameplate necklace on. I say a nameplate because I think listeners can think about Carrie Bradshaw having a nameplate. <laughs> but yours had a word on. The word was power. Mm-hmm. Let's just finish by you defining what power could and should look like in the yeah. future, Tarana. Well, first of all, the suit was Prabhu Garang. I love he, him. Yes, he gave me that suit awesome. as a gift, and I, I absolutely love him. He has been so supportive of the movement and of my work. The power necklace is important to me, and I wear it all the time. I wore it the other day here because I think that we have to reimagine and redefine what power can look like. Right now, the reason why sexual violence is so prevalent and, and the mistake that we make in examining it is that we're not looking at what unchecked accumulations of power do. When you have people, power inherently is not wrong if it's used well, right? And so the reason why I feel like survivors have power, most of us have had to figure out how to turn our trauma into some kind of triumph in our life, and that is power. There's power in numbers, there's power in work, there's power in healing, and if we think about it differently and not in a corruptive way, or that we have to use it to be corruptive, then it is the catalyst to move the needle towards ending sexual violence. It is the catalyst towards moving to a, a time where we really respect each other's humanity. Like, it feels very pie in the sky to be like, oh, humanity and dignity. But really, I just have to be Pollyanna in that way because I really think this is about, it fundamentally is about respecting each other's humanity. And if we redefine power as that, I mean, how beautiful life could be, right? It changes everything. I believe that. Thank you so much (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, it's getting hard. My parents feel that this is a waste of time. Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. To learn more about our guests and the issues that we've spoken about today, hop on over to my website, which is clairepress.com forward slash podcast. You can get in touch there and I really hope you will. I'd love to hear from you. And you can also find links to my social media. And finally, 
If you're enjoying the show, please head over to iTunes and subscribe. You know what they say, first in, best dressed. Subscribers are first to find out when there's a new episode and it also helps other people discover wardrobe crisis, so I'd love your help with that because the more people who switch on to ethical fashion, the better. Music is by Montaigne. She recorded this special acoustic version of Because I Love You, which is from her Glorious Heights album, especially for Wardrobe Crisis. How good is that? Thank you, Montaigne. Because I love you, my parents feel that this is a waste of time. I tell you where, okay, I won't admit that I am blind. My friends all feel that I'm carrying a steel. I tell them all that they are wrong. Because I love you, because I love you. Because I love you, because I love you.